Happy New Year, everybody. In this episode, I decided to do something special since it's the first episode of the year. I decided to cover the first towns in North Carolina. There were a whole lot of settlements in Colonial Carolina early on, but there is only two towns that can take the credit for being number one and number two. So stick around and I'll tell you about Bath and New Bern. Welcome to the NC Everything Podcast. This is a weekly show where I cover everything that has anything to do with North Carolina. First, I want to say I hope uh, all of you had a a happy and fun and safe uh, Christmas and definitely a safe New Year's. Some of you may be recovering from some New Year's parties from last night. Don't worry, I'm not judging you. If uh, you are listening to this on New Year's Day and you are recovering from, from anything you did last night then uh, I'm extra glad to have you. That means you're a pretty hardcore listener um, if, if my voice is what you feel like hearing right now. Now, if you are new to the show, I'm glad you found us, and I, I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, if you do enjoy this episode and you want to hear some more, you can go to www.dnceverythingpodcast.com, and there you can hear all my past episodes. And actually, in this episode, I'm going to reference uh, several of my past episodes. They all kind of kind of cross paths uh here in New Bern and Bath. And uh I'm not getting into the content quite yet. First I have to say that you can also follow me on Facebook by searching the NC Everything Podcast on Facebook. I also have an Instagram and a Twitter. And lastly, uh for you returning listeners, you know this, but any of uh any of you new guys, if you have any thoughts about today's episode or any suggestions for future episodes, you can reach out to me on the website by going to the contact link. And there you can write whatever you want, and I, I certainly look forward to hearing from you. Now, as far as my holiday celebrations go, I just want to let you know that I, in, in, on my side of the microphone, I hadn't quite got there yet. Today is actually uh, the day before Christmas Eve, so I guess it's Christmas Eve Eve. But I don't plan on getting too crazy or, or raising the roof or anything like that over the holidays. We're going we're gonna to stay pretty close to the house, but... Um, in the evening of Christmas day, I do plan on going down to the coast for a few days and just taking some time off, relaxing and, uh, maybe planning, planning my next episodes. I don't want to work too much down there, but I do want to stay ahead. But anyway, uh, I don't want to ramble on too much. Let's go ahead and get into the content. All right. I adjusted my mic a little bit, so I may sound a little different than I did just a second ago. Anyway, let's start with number one. The first town in North Carolina, and that is Bath. And if it sounds like I'm saying Bath like bathtub, well, I am. Um, I'll explain where that name comes from in a little bit. But in true NC Everything podcast fashion, before I can really tell you about Bath, I got to give you a little bit of backstory. You know, some uh, history of the history. Don't worry, I'll I'll try to make it brief. Now, if you listened to um, episode 66 on Sir Walter Raleigh, then you know of the Lost Colony or at least a timeline of the Lost Colony. I didn't actually cover the Lost Colony in that episode. But if you didn't listen to the episode, or you've never heard of the Lost Colony, the Lost Colony was the first attempt at European colonization in the New World that we now know of as North America. That was in uh, 1587, and of course, it failed. Now, you fast forward 19 years, and now we're at 1606. 
King James I of England, and yes, that's the same king who had Sir Walter Raleigh beheaded, well, he decided to give colonization another go. And so on April 10th of that year, he chartered the Virginia Company of London, and they left London on December 20th. Now, their only goal was to colonize the New World. Now, I say only goal, that's a that's a, a pretty big job, but that was their only mission, was to start a colony. So on May 12th, the following year, 1607, they landed on a small island in the James River in present-day Virginia, and it was there that they established the Jamestown Colony. Now, we know the Jamestown Colony is the first successful European colony in the New World, but that wasn't um, easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. Now, I'm not going to go over um, the Jamestown Colony too much. I'm just going to kind of give you the highlights. But the Jamestown Colony, um, they would have failed if it wasn't for the help of the local natives. However, the relationship between the natives and the colonists eventually soured, like they typically do. But not before a firm relationship was built between the colonists and one of the native females named Pocahontas. Well, eventually, they started starving, and a few of them resorted to cannibalism before a man named John Rolfe came and saved the day by introducing tobacco. He taught the colonists how to grow it and how to harvest it, and with this tobacco, the colony started to improve. This was because they could trade the tobacco to the natives, and they could also trade it to passing merchant ships in the area. Now, the reason I tell you this is because Jamestown is actually the key to the colonization of modern-day Carolina. As the Jamestown colony started to grow and, and become more populated, well, people started branching out farther and farther from the original colony. Some migrated north into what we now know as New England, and some, migra some migrated south toward the Albemarle area or the Albemarle Sound. Now, before I get too deep into this, just keep in mind that until I tell you otherwise, this isn't North Carolina. This is the Carolina colony, which included modern-day North and South Carolina. I know most of you know this, but there's that one young person who's going to listen to this who hasn't heard any of it yet, and, uh, and I want to make sure I, I kind of include everybody. So now we're at 1618, and like I said, people are starting to move into the, the Albemarle area. They're looking for fertile land to start their own homesteads because, like I said, Jamestown is getting a little crowded. They say by the 1690s, there were settlers scattered all through the Albemarle Sound area and the Pamlico Sound area. Well, in 1696, Bath County was established. Now, Bath County was named after one of the Lord proprietors of the Carolina colony. This was John Granville, who was the Earl of Bath. And the Bath that he was the Earl of was in England, of course. That city was named after the famous Roman Baths. So that's how we got the name uh, Bath. I know Bath is an unusual name for anything except, I guess, a bath. But um, that's how history works, I guess. So now you got Bath County, and there's settlers um, everywhere through here. One of the first settlers in the area was a man named John Lawson. And John Lawson was the surveyor general for the Carolina Colony. So his job, more or less, was to explore the Carolina colony and map out the good areas and the bad areas and where the natives were and the rivers and the creeks. That's pretty typical survey work. They, they do that today. However, the ulterior motive for John Lawson was to bring people to the Carolina colony. Settlers meant money. Money for the king, money for the proprietors, which meant money for John Lawson. In 1700, 
John Lawson set out from present-day Charleston, South Carolina, and headed north. He made this incredible journey all around uh, South and North Carolina, and I'm in the show notes, I'll have a map of, of the track he, uh, he took. Now, what he was doing was trying to get a lay of the land, you know, and figure out uh, a good place to start a new settlement. I mean, there were plenty of little homesteads um, all over the place, but he wanted to start a, an, an actual town. And when you look at the map on the, the website, it's incredible that he more or less walked this whole way. Um, I think there was some horses involved in part of it, but for the most part, um, he walked. Several years later, he would write a book about this journey, and um, I've actually read it. It's really interesting because he documents his experiences with the natives, and he writes about plants and animals and pretty much everything he sees. And for me, it was uh, just really fascinating to see our state before it became what it is today. The book, by the way, is called The History of Carolina, and it was written in 1709. So anyway, John Lawson, he sets out on this journey in December of 1700, and his journey was over in February of 1701. He ended his journey when he found a little cove just off the Pamlico River. It had uh, plenty of pine forest, plenty of water access, and plenty of game to, to hunt and eat. And this is where he wanted to set up a permanent settlement. Now, this wasn't uh, way out in the middle of nowhere. There, there were settlers here. And part of the town that he would eventually lay out um, was, was on land purchased from some of these settlers. I'll, I'll go over that in just a minute. But John Lawson felt like he found the perfect spot and word got out. So a lot of people started kind of coming to the area. I wouldn't say flocking to the area, but people did come to check out this new fertile land that John Lawson had found. Now, even though I read that John Lawson was specifically looking for a place to start a new town, um, my research also said that nobody knows whose idea it was to actually start a town in this area. I would assume John Lawson, but... They say that that person has been lost to history. Anyway, down on the Pamlico River, there's a point that is formed by the Old Town Creek, which is now known as Bath Creek, and Adams Creek, which is now known as Back Creek. Now, a point is just land that kind of juts out into the water, and it was on this jut of land where they decided to build the town. Now, like I said earlier, there were already some settlers here, but before the settlers got here, this was actually the site of two Native American towns that had since been abandoned. One was referred to as Pamtico Town, sounds a lot like Pamlico, and the other was called uh, Cotan or Cotan. That's why one of the creeks I mentioned was called Old Town Creek because of this old Indian town. Now, it was around this time that the St. Thomas Parish was established. This would go down in history as the first and oldest church in the Carolina colony. But here's the thing. A parish is really a group of people led by a minister. So the parish is the group, not necessarily a church building. Now, the reason I say this is because St. Thomas Parish didn't actually get a church building until several years later. In 1701, a whole library of books was sent to St. Thomas Parish. And this would become the first public library in the Carolina colony. Now we are at 1704, and John Lawson, Joel Martin, and Simon Anderson bought about 60 acres of land from a guy named Dave Perkins. This guy Perkins, he was one of the settlers in the area that I was talking about, and uh, they bought a small portion of his farm. And together, these three men, Lawson, Martin, and, and Alderson, they drew up plans for the town. 
They laid out where the streets would go and the lots that would be for sale, and they planned to have a town with 71 lots. They got started right away, and it didn't take long before settlers started buying the lots to this new town. Now, they named the town Bath, again after John Granville, the Earl of Bath. Well, the area grew and grew, and on March 8th of 1705, legislation was passed that made that, that, that made Bath the first incorporated town in the Carolina colony. Now, I, I told you earlier that because I'll be gov- uh, going over the first towns, there'll be a lot of North Carolina firsts. So already we have the first town, and we have the first church. Well, in 1707, the first gristmill and the first shipyard opened up in Carolina, and the first ship was built on the Pamlico River in 1707 as well. All right, in 1708, there's about 50 people living in 12 houses in Bath. So the town is doing real good. However, and you know there's got to be a however, um, it wasn't all peace and love in the area. First, in 1711, there was Cary's Rebellion, which was pretty much a conflict over the governorship of the colony. It was between Thomas Carey and Edward Hyde. So, in a nutshell, um, Edward Hyde didn't like Thomas Carey and vice versa. Each of them had their own supporters. Well, when Edward Hyde took governorship of the Carolina colony, he ordered the arrest of Thomas Carey. Well, Thomas Carey wasn't going to have for that, so he got on a ship and he got out of Dodge. Edward Hyde... Edward Hyde pursued him, and eventually a few battles took place, I think uh, mostly in the Albemarle Sound. Eventually, Governor Spotswood sent troops down to arrest Carey and his supporters. Well, they were arrested and taken to England to stand trial, but more or less they were acquitted and Carey returned to Bath County to live out the rest of his life. Also beginning in 1711 was the Tuscarora War. Now, I covered the, the Tuscarora War in episode 21 and 22, But to sum it up, the natives were getting tired of getting pushed around by the settlers, as you can imagine, and so tensions were high. Well, John Lawson, he kind of disrespected the Tuscaroras by trying to to get across their land without asking their permission. Eventually, he was executed for this, and the natives knew that the death of John Lawson would bring war, and so they attacked first. And for four years, some of the bloodiest conflicts between natives and white men took place. In 1712, the North Carolina or the Carolina colony splits into two, North and South Carolina. Now, the main reason for this was that the major towns in North Carolina was Bath and New Bern, and the major towns in South Carolina was Charleston, and these two were very, very far away from each other, and so the Lord's proprietors decided to split them up. Queen Anne would eventually name Edward Hyde as the first royal governor of North Carolina. That next year, in 1713, Queen Anne would make Charles Eden the royal governor, and if that name sounds familiar, he is the one who pardoned Blackbeard and may or may not have been colluding with him. I don't want to jump ahead, though. Governor Eden, on lots number 9, number 10, number 22, and number 23 on Front Street in Bath, and he also purchased the back lots number 67 and 68. And on top of all this, he owned a 400-acre plantation on the west side of Bath Creek. So you can see, not only was he the royal governor, but he also owned a ton of land. Eventually, he would sell his plantation to John Lillington in 1718. Now, I'm not going to say that Governor Eden was crooked, but I want to tell you this story. Eventually, King George I, who came after Queen Anne, came up with the Mercy Act. 
The Mercy Act stated that if pirates surrendered and threw themselves upon the mercy of the crown, then they would be pardoned. Oh, keep in mind, this is the golden age of piracy. Uh, that's what was going on around this time. So Edward Teach, better known as Blackbeard, decided to accept this offer. He surrenders to Governor Eden, and he gets tried in court at Bath. And they determined that he was not a pirate, but a privateersman. At this point, Teach would build a home on Plum Point, which is across the creek from Governor Eden's home. Now, a lot of people over the years have speculated whether or not Blackbeard and Eden were in cahoots. The idea is that Blackbeard plunders ships and Eden gets part of the booty. Well, that never really has been confirmed. However, after Blackbeard was killed, uh, they found a letter on his body that came from Governor Eden, and uh, Governor Eden was requesting a meeting. And then there was Tobias Knight. Tobias Knight was Governor Eden's secretary. And supposedly, after Blackbeard was killed, a lot of loot from Blackbeard's raids were found in Tobias Knight's barn. But like I said, they never proved that Eden and Blackbeard uh, had really anything to do with each other. But that didn't matter because Governor Eden was tried and sentenced by the court of public opinion. His reputation was ruined, but not really for too long. Governor Eden died of yellow fever in Bertie County in 1722 at age 48. And this was just four years after Blackbeard was killed. Now let's get back to the town history. In 1734, St. Thomas Parish finally got a church. And like I said, it's the oldest existing church in North Carolina. Now, Bath was doing pretty good and it thrived for a long time. But in 1776, a new town was formed about 15 miles up the Pamlico River. And this town was Washington. Now, I'm not going to cover Washington in this episode, but um, it's, it's definitely going to be a future episode. Anyway, Washington, Washington, North Carolina gets established and all the government kind of moves their business, business up to Washington. And so, as you may guess, this once booming town started to decline. And today, Bath is more like a, a small village than, than a major city on the Pamlico River. It's actually hard to believe that um, the majority of the colonial politics took place right there in that spot. Now, let's talk about the second town. Um, I might I might have threw you for a loop there with uh, Washington. And um, if you didn't read the title, you might be thinking, isn't Washington the second town? But no, we are talking about New Bern. So let's back up a little bit back to 1710. Actually, let's back up a little bit farther than that. And I'll tell you about Christoph von Grafenried. By the way, this stuff about John Lawson and Grafenried, I talked a lot about this in my Tuscarora War episode, so some of you may be familiar with a lot of this already. Christoph von Grafenried, who I will just call Grafenried from now on, was born in the village of Warb, Switzerland, and that's essentially a suburb of the city of Bern. Once Grafenried entered adulthood, he became a, a bit of a traveler. And during his travels, he met the Duke of Albemarle and several other lord proprietors of the Carolina colony. This is how he became familiar with Carolina. Well, another man he would eventually meet was Franz Ludwig, Mc, uh, I don't know, Michael Mitchell. It's uh, M-I-C-H-E-L. Anyway, this guy Franz, he was kind of an explorer, and he talked Graffenreed into joining the George Ritter and Company. George Ritter and Company planned to mine silver deposits in the Carolina colony, and they wanted to help Swiss immigrants settle in Pennsylvania and Virginia. 
Well, Graffin Reed must have made a, a pretty good impression because he pretty much took over the, the Ritter company. Then he changed the plan a little bit. He wanted to settle colonists in the province of Carolina. Well, the Ritter Company buys about 19,000 acres of land along the Noose River in the Carolina colony, and Graffin Reed personally held about 5,000 of these acres. Eventually, Graffin Reed left England with about 150 Swiss colonists. While they were en route to the New World, they were attacked by the French, and the French pretty much took everything they had, but eventually they were able to make it. Now, when he gets here, he meets up with a man named John Lawson. Remember him from Bath? He was the surveyor who wants people to buy property in Carolina. Well, Lawson shows him around the Noose River and Trent River area. Now, my notes here say that, that Graffin Reed purchased land that would become New Bern from Lawson. But I'm not sure if this was additional land on top of what he already owned, or if the land that he purchased originally was actually purchased from Lawson. I'm not, I'm not sure how that deal worked out. I'm, I'm a little confused on that part of it. But what I do know is that as a show of good faith, he also bought the land a second time from the Tuscarora people. Now, one thing I'll tell you, and, and you can kind of pick up on this a little more in my Tuscarora episode, but Graffin Reed wasn't really a bad guy. He wasn't here to really exploit the land or, or exploit the people. He just wanted to start a settlement. As far as his motivations go, he was a religious guy, and he wanted to, to start a religious settlement. Um, it, it wasn't nothing about making money or oppressing anybody. All right, so this land that Graffin Reed purchased, it contained a small native settlement named Chautauqua. And I read that the oldest elm tree in the United States still stands in the historic section of downtown Newburn, and it was under this tree where the treaty between Graffin Reed and the natives was signed. Now, keep in mind that the natives didn't leave the region just because white settlers moved in. The natives and the settlers were more or less living amongst, amongst each other. But even though they lived in such close proximity to each other and traded with each other, tensions started getting high almost immediately. The settlers didn't have a lot of respect for the Native Americans' customs or traditions, and the natives really didn't care for how careless the settlers were with the land and its bounty. Anyway, Graffin Reed soon laid out the plan for his town. He drew up the town in the shape of a cross, and he wanted to name it Newburn after the land of his ancestors. And in 1710, he officially founded Newburn. The town was settled almost immediately since he brought many of the settlers with him. And the following year, the Tuscarora War that I keep mentioning broke out. And Graffin Reed had a part to play in this. So to give you the highlights, John Lawson is trying to find an overland passage north towards Virginia. Like I said, he was a surveyor. Well, one day he decides to take a ride up the Noose River and he talks Graffin Reed into going with him. Eventually, he passes through Tuscarora land. Now, up to this point, he has had a good relationship with the Tuscarora people. So he knows that traditionally, he's supposed to stop and meet with Chief Hancock before he passes through. Nothing major, just a, hey, how you doing? I'm coming through your land. Let's smoke a pipe together. Anyway, this time, he decides not to stop. Some of the Tuscaroras spotted him and figured he was trespassing and took him prisoner along with Graffin Reed. Well, they take the two men back to Chief Hancock. Well, Chief Hancock, being moderately friendly, just kind of waves this off and says, no harm, no foul. But two things are going on right now. One, Hancock's people are demanding action for this, this sign of disrespect. And two, 
Lawson, who's furious about all this, is kind of talking trash and making threats and swearing that he'll come back with an army. In the meantime, poor old Graffenreed is just kind of along for the ride. Well, his saving grace is that the natives thought that he was the governor of Carolina, so they didn't want to really do anything to him. Chief Hancock, though, he just wants to turn him loose and be done with the whole matter. But eventually, he makes a compromise. He decides to execute John Lawson and release Graffenreed. However, this wasn't good enough for some of the natives. And by the way, in my Tuscarora War episodes, I go into more detail and, and name the names of some of the, the players and all this. Anyway, some of the natives, uh, Chief Hancock's um, people or constituents, I guess you could say, well, they were worried that with the death of John Lawson, an attack was imminent. And so they came up with a preemptive attack. Even though John Lawson didn't live in New Bern and didn't really have a whole lot to do with New Bern, and Grafton Reed really didn't have a whole lot to do with what was going on right now, in the early morning hours of September 23, 1711, Tuscarora raiding parties snuck into New Bern and attacked. They killed anyone they came across, including women and children, and thus began the three-and-a-half-year-long Tuscarora War. The Newburn settlement nearly fell because of this, and also there was an outbreak of yellow fever that didn't really help matters at all. Well, in 1714, Graffenreed sold all of his holdings and returned to Switzerland. And maybe it's just me, but I, I feel bad for the man. I feel like he got dealt a, a really bad hand of cards. Somehow or another, Newburn hung in there, though, and they made it through. Eventually, they built a church and a school. And maybe this seems like a random fact, but... The way a lot of these early settlements worked, um, if you built a church, that was kind of a an anchor point. A anchor point. Um, if if you had a church built, you were planning on sticking around a while. In 1749, James Davis, a Virginian, built a printing press in New Bern, and this would become the first printing press in North Carolina. Eventually, the first book in North Carolina would be published here. And this printing press, if you're curious, it was located on the corner of Broad and East Front Street. Now let's talk about uh, governorship for a minute. After Governor Dobbs died in 1765, Governor William Tryon took over, and almost immediately he selected New Bern as the new site of the capital of the colony. By the way, the, the old capital of the colony was in Brunswick Town, and you can hear about that in episode 18. Now, five years after New Bern became the new uh, colonial capital, uh, William Tryon's new governor's mansion would open its doors, and it would go down in history with the mocking moniker Tryon Palace. I covered Tryon Palace in episode 37, if you're interested in, it, in hearing more about that. Now, if you haven't guessed, a lot of the common people weren't too pleased to see this fancy mansion go up in New Bern. That's why they picked on it and called it Tryon Palace. So it's not surprising that the next year, in 1771, Tryon left North Carolina to assume the governorship of New York. In 1778, New Bern was called a metropolis of North Carolina, if that gives you any indication of how well they were doing. In 1791, about a third of the town was burned in a fire. Now, I tried to find out more about this 1791 fire, but uh, I couldn't find a whole lot, and I would love to know more about it. So if any of you listening know about this, if you're from New Bern, um, you can definitely write in. I, I want to hear more about this since a, a third of the place burned. Now, I'm sure it wasn't a, a huge city back then, so a third of it probably isn't all that much land, but uh, I still want to know about it. 
1794, the state legislature met for the last time in New Bern before they moved to the new capital in Raleigh. Four years after that, in 1798, Tron Palace would burn when a torch accidentally ignited some dry hay inside the palace. Now, you can go to New Bern today and see Tron Palace, but it's uh, pretty much been rebuilt to, to the exact specifications that William Tron originally set. Anyway, despite all these fires and all these problems, uh, New Bern continued to grow, and at one time it was the largest city in North Carolina. Now, since I've mentioned two major fires, I have to bring up the fire department. And New Bern has a really rich history with the fire department. I'm going to talk about it, but um, there's a lot to it. The first fire department in New Bern started in 1845, and this was the Atlantic Hook and Ladder Company. Well, during the Civil War, the Atlantic Hook and Ladder Company didn't have a whole lot going on since most of the men were gone fighting. Also, New Bern was occupied by Union forces for most of the war. And that brings me to the Battle of New Bern. I won't dig deep into the Civil War here, but I will give you the highlights. And we are going to go back and talk more about that fire department here in just a minute. So, as you may know from listening to some of my past episodes or just basic knowledge of North Carolina history, Union forces were really attacking the Carolina coast a lot during the Civil War. And a lot of that had to do with uh, the major ports we have on the Carolina coast. And a lot of the Confederate soldiers in the Civil War came from North Carolina. So Union forces had taken Fort Macon and they had taken Brunswick Town. And that's just two that I covered in my show. So the, the Union was working their way inland up the rivers and they eventually came to New Bern. Now, New Bern had several forts along the river for defense, but it was to no avail. In March of 1862, Union forces under Major General Burnside attacked New Bern, which was being defended by Brigadier General Lawrence Branch. The Confederates put up a really good fight, but eventually New Bern was evacuated and the Union took the city. During the battle, the Union lost 90 men and had 380 wounded. The Confederates lost 64 men and 101 wounded. The Union would hold New Bern for the remainder of the Civil War. Now, during the war, Union forces did establish the New Bern Steam Fire Engine Company Number 1. So they, uh, it was nice of them to set up a, a fire department while they were occupying the city. Well, after the Civil War was over, the former firefighters returned to New Bern, and they changed the Atlantic Hook and Ladder Company to simply the Atlantic Company. The thing was that the Union Fire Department was still there and active, and they really weren't going nowhere. And so a rivalry began between the New Bern Fire Engine Company and the Atlantic Company, and this went on for years. Eventually, they would start having competitions to see who was the best, and some of the records set by these two companies have never been beaten. Now, I'm not trying to take away from any other New Bern Fire Departments. As the city grew, other engine companies came into, into existence, but these two were just the most famous. Now, just to stick with the timeline, I got to step away from the fire department just a minute, but I'm going to get back to it because now we're in 1893. And in 1893, there is a man named Caleb Bradham who is working on something really special. Soda was kind of a new kind of beverage and Bradham was hoping to create his own. And so in 1893, at a pharmacy at Pollock and Middle Streets, Caleb Bradham created a drink that would become known as Pepsi Cola. And you can hear the whole Pepsi story in episode three. Now back to the fire department for a minute. They were all put to the test in 1922 when another fire broke out and burned most of the city. 
2,000 people were left homeless. This rivalry that I was talking about between the two fire companies that went on for years, it was more or less put to an end in 1928. I don't actually know if this ended the rivalry, but in 1928, the town council decided to house both of these fire companies in one central fire station. I guess the equivalent of uh, hug it out or, you know, y'all hate each other so you'll live together. But this central fire station was located on Broad Street in downtown Newburn. The funny thing is, this building is symmetrical in every way so that one company would not feel like the other one got more than they did. Each company had his own slide pole and they had their own company meetings. They also had their own fire chiefs. It kind of reminds me of the old TV shows where two kids sharing one room, you know, would put tape on the floor to, to designate their, their respective sides. Eventually, there was one fire chief who would rotate between the two companies. And in 2001, Newburn appointed a full-time fire chief who was chief over both companies. Today, these two rivaling companies are just known as the Newburn Volunteer Fire Department. And the old central firehouse that was symmetrical is now the Newburn Fireman's Museum. And I can tell you a funny story about that. I used to be a volunteer firefighter, and one time during that time I visited Newburn. And so naturally, I wanted to go see the Fireman's Museum. I go in, and the fire department is uh, its pretty incredible in there. Um, it, you know, for an old station, it doesn't look modern at all. It's a really cool building. Anyway, all out on the floor where the trucks would have sat, there are antique fire trucks and antique firefighting equipment. Well, my wife and I, we looked around for a minute before this older gentleman came walking up. And if any of you know the name of this old man who I'm about to talk about, please tell me because it was a great experience. But anyway, this guy walks up and he's super friendly and we start to chit chat about the fire department, but that only lasted for about a minute or two because pretty quickly he found out that I studied the Civil War. And we spent the next hour talking about the Civil War. Really, he did all the talking, and I just kind of sit there and listened in amazement. This guy's knowledge of the Civil War, especially in and around Newburn, was so very vast. I left there amazed and far more educated about the Civil War in Newburn than I ever was before. Now, I don't know if this old man is still alive today, but he sure gave me a good memory and a, a good experience of my time in Newburn. Now, today, Newburn is home to just under 30,000 residents. I used to go on vacation uh, down at Emerald Isle, and uh, hadn't been in a few years, but when I was a kid, when we were on our way to Emerald Isle, a lot of times we would go over the bridges, and I don't remember if we would go through or past Newburn, but uh, it was always kind of a, a great waypoint. You go over those bridges, and, and there's Newburn sitting right there on the river. It's a, it's a really cool town to see as you're coming into it. But that brings me uh, to the end of this episode. I know uh, Newburn had a, a lot more extensive history than Bath. I think that's obviously because Bath was kind of overshadowed by that, that city of Washington that opened up. And uh, I'll most likely do an episode on that pretty soon. Um, I always try to give fair coverage to the state. You know, I want to bounce between mountains, Piedmont, and coast. And I feel like I've given a little more attention to the coast. And so I want to kind of get farther inland in the next few episodes. But since our state started on the coast, um, I, you know, I have no choice but to get back down here pretty soon. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Uh, I hope it wasn't too much to dump on you at one time. I'm, I'm probably this year gonna, gonna do a few more uh, combo episodes because I have a handful of stuff that that wouldn't really make a, a episode in itself. So I'm probably gonna start putting a few together. 
Anyway, if you did like the episode, uh, and if you haven't done it already, you can subscribe. And if there's a possibility where you're listening at to leave me a, a rating, uh, ratings definitely help. It helps people find the show and helps make me uh, get listed closer to the top of, of my category. Um, you could also tell a friend, and if you really want to, you can go to the website at www.dnceverythingpodcast.com, hit the contact button, and uh, you can tell me all about what you think. I do love hearing from you. Um, it's one of my favorite things to open up my email and, and see I, I have a, a, ne- a message from somebody who listened to the show. Uh, one thing I hadn't mentioned in a while is I want to cover North Carolina stories on here. Um, if you have any kind of North Carolina story, a, a funny experience, an anecdote, or uh, something about you growing up here or you moving here, pretty much any North Carolina story, um, again, you can contact me on the website and tell me all about it. And, uh, we can either set up an interview or you can type it out and I'll read it word for word on the, on the show. But, uh, I definitely want to, I want this show to, 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 to be more about the people too, not just, uh, it's history. Um, that's, that's kind of where I want the future of this show to go. Anyway, I don't want to ramble on about that too much. I actually got to go get packed up to, to, to go to the beach and, and finish cleaning up for, for Christmas, uh, Christmas breakfast tomorrow. But um, last thing, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, although um, I, I get pretty lazy on those social medias. I'm trying to be a presence on there, but uh, um, it's it's something I'm I'm still working on. I'm, I'm not a huge social media person, but uh, I'm doing what I can when I can anyway. All right, well, that's it. Um, Happy New Year's, and, and man, I hope this is a, a good year. We, we need a, a really good year to, to recover from the past few Um, but thank you for listening and I will talk to you next time. The music in this episode comes from archesaudio.com and freepd.com.